Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. You're confident when it comes to your work and life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same confidence when it comes to refinancing your existing mortgage or buying a home. It lets you understand all the details so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. Go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. This is your host, Vincent Chen, and it is Tuesday, July 11th. Happy to be back in the studio after the holiday last week, especially since we are continuing with our Never Will I Ever theme for Industry Focus this week. This is our opportunity to share some of the things that we want to avoid as much as possible for the sake of our investing in financial health. Joining me via Skype to share his take on Never Will I Ever is SeniorFool.com contributor Asit Sharma. Hey, Asit, great to have you with us. Afternoon, Vince. Thanks very much. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you seem really excited for this theme week, um, and you uh, came up with some really good ideas and the core message and lessons, I think, behind this episode. So, the least I can do is let you officially unveil it. What is overall our take on this Never Will I Ever theme? Aside from never will I ever eat as much dessert and sweet stuff as I did this weekend, <laughs> something more stock and investment oriented, and that is never ever will I trade. Now, folks, I have traded at various points in my checkered career, uh, most recently nine years ago. And at that point, I decided, look, never ever will I trade again. Vince, just curious, have you ever traded? No, I and here's the nuance, uh, listeners. By the way, between trading and investing, right? Uh, trading being a much more short-term focused endeavor. Um, but I've been fortunate enough uh, to generally have avoided that. I've seen the losses stack up for friends and family who have tried kind of the day trading game and and how poorly that ended up working out for them. But fortunately, they seem to learn their lessons relatively quickly. Um, but what was your experience like, Asit? So, I traded back in the early 90s for a bit. I traded stocks and I've traded options, I've traded some futures, and I've traded foreign currencies, each time with a pretty small stake. At heart, I'm an investor, but like other people, I've been allured by this idea that you can take advantage of short term price movements to increase your capital. It never quite worked out for me. And this is why I'm so excited about this episode. Rather than give our listeners the generic reasons why you shouldn't trade. You know, it's risky, there are few people that succeed. Sort of the things that you mentioned, Vince, which illustrate what we hear from family and friends when they try it, and personally on my side, we want to give you some really specific reasons why the deck is stacked against you. And to do that, we're gonna delve um, into the work of a very famous speculator today named Victor Niederhofer. Now, Victor Niederhofer is one of the star futures traders. He's traded stocks, almost every conceivable market. And in the 80s, uh, he became so renowned that the legendary George Soros asked him to trade on his account. But he's also known for spectacular losing, uh, serial losings of fortunes, uh, losing them, regaining them. Uh, he's an academic turned trader, so he provides a lot of great insights into trading. So we're gonna talk about some bits from his memoir, The Education of a Speculator, which was published in 1998. Uh, a great read. I recommend any of our listeners, uh, if you want to learn more about what speculation is like with some takeaways for investing, grab this book from Amazon. It's worth your time. It's very colorfully written, very well written. But Niederhofer gives 
some very tangible reasons why you shouldn't trade, and we're going to talk about those today. Yeah, so when you first described this idea to me, I figured you were kind of referring to the pretty well-known boogeyman of day trading or technical trend trading or whatever it might be. I think a lot of our Foolish Investors and listeners are well aware uh, of how often we hit here on The Fool on having a long-term outlook investing and investing horizon whenever possible. Um, but there is more to this idea than just the common pitfalls uh, for people who measure their holding periods in just a few days or hours. So we're going to uh, look beyond some of the studies out there that indicate you know the large majority of day traders do end up underperforming the broad market and losing money. The fact that there's uh, a lot of costs and transactions out there that end up erasing the profits to make, and that's probably one of the first things that we're going to discuss. So what uh, we're touching on two insights today uh, from Victor. Um, can you kick us off on the first one? Absolutely. The first insight is the bid-ask spread works against you in frequent trading. And so, Vince, if I can ask you to, for our listeners who don't know, define what the bid-ask spread is, and then we'll tell you what Victor Niederhofer's very particular take on this is. Sure thing. So, uh, for the bid-ask spread, you basically have uh, two sides of the supply and demand equation. So, on the supply side, it's the ask or the asking price for the security, basically the minimum that someone is going to accept in order to sell. And then you have the demand side of the equation, the bid, and that's the most someone's willing to pay in order to buy. The difference between them is the bid-ask spread. And the reason this spread exists, just some background, is to compensate uh, the market maker for the security. So just like it sounds, the market maker is usually a large brokerage or bank, and they take on risk by essentially holding an inventory of the security, whether it's stock or options, and quickly fulfilling orders as they come through. So if you've ever wondered how it is that you can sell uh, your, for example, 129 shares of company XYZ at the push of a button, those are not going directly to some buyer on the other side of the country or the globe, but the market maker picks them up. And so, for more well-known liquid stocks, for example, the spread's pretty small, pretty insignificant, since the market maker can quickly find essentially buyers and sellers who are pretty much on the same page as the value of each share, and they might charge you a penny or two for the spread. But when you start getting into smaller, more obscure companies with less trading volume, you'll see the bid-ask spread widen, since the market maker will take on the shares you're selling and have to hold them potentially longer before finding a buyer. In the meantime, the value of that stock or the security can change. So, the last thing you want to do is sell the shares at a lower price than they purchase them and rack up losses. Absolutely. That's a really great definition of the bid-ask spread and, and its implications. So, Victor Niederhofer first observed this when he was a kid hustling uh, handball games on the streets of Brighton Beach. So, he, from an early age, learned about how trading works by essentially being this kid gambler who was very good in handball. He went on to be a national squash champion, by the way, in his years at Harvard. But what Victor observed is that bookies would collect bets while he played. And, and what he, he tells us is, the bid-ask spread with the market makers taking compensation for providing liquidity is the same thing as the vigorish in the gambling world. So the vigorish, or the vig, as it's more commonly known, is the commission that a bookie takes in order for you to place a bet. The ideal situation for a bookie is that he or she will collect equal bets from both sides uh, of a wager on an event. That commission that he's charging each side is the bookie's vig, the vigorish. And Niederhofer observes that, look, 
In gambling, people say you get eaten up by the VIG, but the same thing is true in the markets. You're essentially playing, paying VIG to the brokerage houses or the, the market makers by extension when you trade frequently. And this has enormous implications for those who've considered their transaction costs. I um, want to talk a little bit about the implication of size of the stock that you're trading in terms of its total market capitalization. Um, Vince, I know you and I uh, exchanged some notes. One of those was a slide by the famous uh, finance and valuation expert at NYU, Professor Aswath Damodaran. And Professor Damodaran's slide in this particular study we looked at showed that wider uh, bid-ask spreads are associated with stocks that have a low market capitalization. And for a high capitalization stock, those uh, bid-ask spreads tend to narrow very much. So traders, there's some logic here that hit home to me when I was trading that may be hitting home to you. If you're out there day trading, the stocks that you need to trade uh, to make money in the stock market are the ones that are more volatile. And the ones that are more volatile with the higher betas, those are smaller capitalization stocks for the most part. So the biggest stock price movements during the day are correlated with stocks which have a low market capitalization. And Professor Damodaran tells us that, hey, those have wide bid-ask spreads. Uh, so let's move to a specific example. Uh, Vince, have you ever put on a pair of Uggs in your life? Yes, I have tried a <laughs> pair on. I've never owned them myself, but I have tried them on. They're pretty comfortable. Wonderful. So <laughs> we are referring, of course, to Decker's Outdoor Corporation. So this is the maker of Ugg boots, which was the very popular item a few winters ago. The stock has been up and down. And uh, Vince, if I'm not mistaken, we currently have a buy recommendation on that stock at the Motley Fool, correct? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, so uh, Motley Fool is saying, hey, this is a long-term investment in a foolish way. Don't trade the stock, but buy it and hold it. A few specific technical things about this stock, how it trades on the market. So if you go past recent history, that is the last tr a few trading weeks, DECK, uh, Decker's Outdoor Corporation, I'm just going to call it DEC for short, has a beta, long-term beta of 2.0. That means it is twice as volatile as the market. And I checked the spread uh, on the stock this morning. The stock trades uh, between $66 and $67. So let's just for uh, arguments or conversation's sake, say the stock trades around $67 right now. The bid-ask spread was fluctuating this morning anywhere from $0.03 cents to around $0.12. Cents. So, uh, Vince, I'm going to ask you uh, a question. Do you think that such a narrow spread, let's say, let's take the middle of that, about $0.07, cents, would have any impact on uh, someone who traded the stock frequently? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, see, that's why they pay you the big bucks. You have a lot of brain power. It took me losing money to sort of figure this out in the markets. Let's take this example of, of seven cents. So investors out there who dabbled in, in trading, assume that you are trading this stock and you've got a stake of $6,700. That's 100 shares. And let's, to make keep the example simple, assume that your broker lets you trade on margin, which means you can trade the stock more than once a day. Let's say that you have two round trips a day. So at a bid-ask spread of $0.07, cents, that's the VIG that you're giving up to the house. If you trade that stock two times a day, that's 
that $14 multiplied by 250 trading days, assuming you're going to make good enough money to take two weeks off for vacation, <laughs> that equals $3,500. So we're talking about an initial stake of $6,700. More than half of that is just going to the VIG, to the house, if you're trading the stock only twice a day. Now, let's talk about commissions. Uh, those who trade off and have probably researched, there are some brokerage houses like Interactive Brokers, which um, only charge a dollar per round trip. So four round trips in a day is $4 times 250 is another $1,000 on top of that $3,500. If you're going with the more traditional uh, discount broker, even one that's only charging five bucks a trade, that's $5,000 in commission plus the $3,500 that you paid in VIG, in one year, if your commission is five bucks, you will have $8,500 of trading cost on an initial trading stake of $6,700. So Vince, I'm gonna flip it back to you and ask you to talk a little bit about the other side of that. What's the rationale to follow our investment advice and invest in the stock versus trading? Yeah, and that's the big thing here. Uh, you know, the challenge for so many day traders, as you mentioned, you're looking for these stocks that will make significant short-term moves so you can earn quick profits, but these are the very stocks that tend to have those larger bid-ask spreads. And in this case, only $0.07 cents doesn't seem on the surface to be that much uh, for Decker Outdoor. But uh, having that larger spread means the small profits that you do make get eroded right off the bat by the higher costs. Whereas, in a situation where you're taking that longer-term outlook, um, you know, as a full recommendation with this company, uh, you know, you buy it uh, once, and even with a, uh, even regardless of what size your stake is, you buy it once, and maybe you add on to your position a few times throughout the year uh, if you're trying to uh, average out your cost. But in the end, uh, you're only essentially paying that vig that you mentioned uh, a handful of times versus dozens and dozens of times just in a week or two week period. Absolutely. So your money is really going to work for you instead of being eroded by this frequent trading, which seems so innocuous unless you start paying attention to what it costs you in a year's worth of trading. And by definition, day trading is for many people, it's either a hobby or even a career. And you're doing it frequently, you're doing it throughout the year. So you're turning into that capital. So next, we'll talk about how even the amount of money you have to invest can be a disadvantage as well. But before we do that, support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. With Rocket Mortgage, you can apply simply and understand fully so you can mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Again, that's rocketmortgage.com fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org number 3030. So, that second piece of insight uh, from Victor touches on how much you have to trade rather than the way you do it. Um, so, break it down for us, Asid. What is he talking about here? Sure. Niederhofer says, without an adequate capital stake, a trader is doomed. That's my paraphrase of his, his point. Here's an example I'm going to read for our listeners, uh, which illustrates why uh, trading stake and size is important. He says, consider playing the following game with a brokerage house. Each day you flip a coin. If it comes up heads, you win a dollar. 
If it comes up tails, you lose a dollar. But on every toss, the broker takes out 20 cents. What are the chances of ending a winner after 200 tosses? The answer, about one in 100,000. Now, the house's take is a function of this broker's commission that we've been talking about, the VIG, and trading costs have decreased since the, an education, the education of a speculator was published back in 1998. And also, Victor is referring here probably to futures contracts, which have a higher trading cost. All the same, you need an edge in trading. That means that statistically, you've got to be right more than 50% of the time. So when you hear people talk about an edge, they're not really referring oftentimes to a qualitative advantage, although that's wrapped up in it. It, it all, more often refers to your statistical advantage each time you trade. Even with an edge of 60%, let's say you're right 60% of the time, without an adequate stake to suffer through the periods of losses, a trader is doomed. So you have to have enough capital to weather those periods. And this is, in the gambling world, a well-known phenomenon called gambler's ruin. And if you're a trader who thinks of yourself as a speculator, you're also exposed to this phenomenon. You gotta have enough money to weather those storms. Um, Vince, you and I talked about a really great scene from the movies, and that is in the movie The Sting, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Do you remember the scene that, that we were talking about? Yeah, so there is uh, this famous car playing scene on a train, um, and Paul Newman, who's the main character, has to try and essentially uh, cheat the cheaters at the table that he's playing with. And ultimately, uh, you know, it's a longer game. And the idea here is how in the Sting, uh, Paul Newman's character ultimately, in order to be successful for himself in this game, has to sustain some of these ups and downs uh, to not only have the edge that you were referring to, but you have to have that adequate capital, or in his case, you know, having the, the money to put on the table, essentially. Yeah, it's a long trade ride. Really recommend this movie. If you haven't seen The Sting, it's so great, and there's a lot to learn about life and even the markets, many great investing metaphors in it. It's a very tense scene, and it's sort of the elapsed time of a several hours long poker game. Uh, in order to have an adequate stake to cheat the bad guy, Paul Newman's accomplice earlier in the film actually steals the bad guy's wallet without his knowledge just before the, the poker game starts. Uh, but he needs that much. There's like 15,000 bucks in the wallet. He needs that much just to be able to get to the point at the very end of the game where he can uh, take the bad guy's money, which sets up a chain reaction of events, which is pre-planned by Paul Newman's character and his accomplices to get back at this bad guy, whose name uh, is Mr. Donegan. Um, so without this stake, without this adequate stake, he couldn't survive the poker game, and neither can you. Uh, listener, neither can I. If you want to trade and, and learn how to speculate, don't go in with uh, you know a thousand bucks. You should have a an adequate amount of money that you can afford to lose and learn exactly what your edge is. Until you go through that, you actually don't know statistically how good you are against the markets. All this is you know leading up to our point that it's it's much better to invest. Now, what does investing have to do with trading in this example? Well, investing is agnostic to trade size. Um, and Vince, 
will it really matter if I have a thousand bucks by invest versus 10,000 if I'm investing versus trading? No, not a difference at all. I think that's the, the, the big advantage that you have taking this longer term, uh, you know, approach to it. Sure. So, um, we've been talking about you and I, McDonald's, Starbucks, and uh, Nike over the past, um, I don't know, year or so of doing these podcasts. Uh, I know we've talked about these stocks on several occasions. Mm -hmm. So, I pulled up some charts the other day and um, just looked at holding Starbucks and Nike and McDonald's uh, and the total return of holding those for just five um, years. And I found out that in each of those cases, even if you just had $1,000 and put it into any of these stocks, you would have had over 100% return on your money. So you would be doubling your money every five years. That's a very, very fast rate to double your capital. If you stretch that out to 10 years for any of these stocks, it gets even more interesting. So McDonald's, Starbucks, Nike, hold any of these for 10 years, or let's say you held them over the last 10 years and reinvested the dividends, your return in each case would be at least 300%, which means you are making 30% on your money uh, year after year after year. And that is extremely hard to replicate in a trading environment. Yeah, I think the big thing to point out there is you know, just the names that you mentioned in terms of McDonald's and Starbucks, like these aren't uh, extremely risky companies uh, in the tech sector or in biotech or something where uh, there might be a lot of volatility or you know uh, some decision or uh, a single year of growth, for example, will send these stocks flying and they might come back down. These are very stable businesses, and in the end, in just the consumer and retail sector that we talk about all the time here, uh, companies like these can still provide really really strong returns if you invest and hold with that long term perspective. Yeah, I would say the edge in this case is the companies have the edge. You just have to find them, and they're out there. They're big. They're ubiquitous. They've got a market-leading um, dominant position, and they're companies which have very strong fortress-like balance sheets and have shown this ability to grow year after year after year. And that's why we love stocks like Starbucks is because they keep growing. They do the work for you, and the edge lies with them, not in your ability to determine uh, you know whether Starbucks is going to be up 50 cents in the next hour. Should you buy it now and, and try to turn it turn that around? Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll be down a week. But over the long term, you're going to win if you can hang on and keep that stake invested. All right, uh, that rounds out our never will I ever discussion for today. Uh, we hope you enjoyed getting a deeper understanding of uh, why it can be so disadvantageous and difficult when you are trading versus investing. Uh, and just for the second point in terms of having the adequate capital, uh, you know, having that sting example, I just remembered this, and I love this example too, is just from Casino Royale, big fan of the 007 films, you think about the poker game from that movie where James frankly loses his loses his pot essentially in the first round and eventually has to go to the CIA to get backed with another $10 million, I think it is, but he's able to use that and come back and have that 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 balance essentially to eventually win against the villain in the movie. Um, but for the rest of the week, make sure you turn into the rest of industry focus. For energy, you'll hear about commodities and pricing. And on the tech show, you'll find out why Dylan waits at least six months before buying into recently IPO'd companies. Thanks again, Asif, for joining us.
Thank you, Vince. And thanks everyone for listening. People in the program may own companies discussed in the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Full on.